I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, celebrating our 300th episode and the end of 2020. Seriously, I can't tell you which one of the two I'm more excited about. Is this year over yet? I'm going to get back to this year in just a minute. But first, I would be completely remiss if I did not start off this episode the way that I normally do and and thank those that make it possible. And I'm going to get to more thank yous in a minute. But the first one I wanted to start with, Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a a forward-thinking brand that was built on the promise to provide designers and architects with the right materials to do their best work. That promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. This is a family business with over 65 years of global product discovery, sourcing and manufacturing the finest products available. Walker Zanger believes strongly in serving the trade with a trade program to make the specifying process simple with the support you need. They also have been staunch supporters of the trade since 1952. Check out their collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Please also make sure to join us for an interactive video series called The Showroom, where you can find some of the most innovative designers talking about their creations. This is just another example of how Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. Check out any of their showrooms across the country or shop online at walkerzanger.com. And thank you, Walker Zanger, for your support of the show. And thank you for your support of the, uh, of the design trade. It's important, especially now. And seriously, to be completely honest, I, I, I can't really tell you which I'm more excited about, hitting episode 300 or ushering out 2020. It's completely irrational to blame anything, let alone everything that's happened on the year itself, but I can't remember a year as absolutely traumatic as 2020. And regardless of how you feel about the outcome of the elections, the future of a vaccine, or the return to normal, say, what, whatever that means, here's what I know. It's been seven years and 300 episodes of Convo by Design. So normally what I do is I kind of do a look back uh, at some of the some of the stories from from the past seven years, and this time is no exception. When this whole COVID thing started back in March, I started talking to designers and architects. Nobody knew what was happening. Everyone, including myself, said things like, "In these unprecedented times," followed by a statement about the obviously troubling times we're in. But here's the thing: as the weeks passed, more conversations took place followed by even more research. I slowly learned something. These are not unprecedented times. There was a pandemic in 1918, and the Spanish flu went pretty much the same way this one has. There were people who complained about masks, society was shut down, and it had a massive effect on how life changed on the other side. In the mid-1920s, Le Corbusier was touting the benefits of cleanliness and minimalism in residential design. Prior and during the early 1900s, indoor bathrooms featured mostly porous wooden furniture and paneling. It held germs and bacteria. The new focus on cleanliness led to tile, linoleum, built-in bathtubs. It led to bigger closets and less cabinetry that held clothing. It led to tile bathrooms. More specifically, the use of subway tile in residential design, and it revolutionized toilet and porcelain sink production. We're seeing some very similar behaviors, and it's safe to say that design and architecture will change again after this pandemic is over. Not unprecedented. We have been through civil unrest, economic recessions, depressions. We have seen trying times. These are not unprecedented times. They are new to us. In an effort to try and understand what comes next, I have spoken with incredibly talented designers and architects to help shed some light on what is most likely next. And speaking of next, that's what is most fun for me about producing this podcast, exploring exquisite design now and figuring out what is going to come next with the best in the business today. That's what Convo by Design is all about.
So as I present to you episode 300, as is tradition, we look back on some of the conversations that have transpired over the past seven years. It would be impossible to do this as if 2020 hadn't been a completely different kind of year. Yet, much of what you're about to hear in the following episode has led up to this. I've long said that designers and architects are futurists and storytellers. You are going to hear some of those conversations, and as you do, you will notice that every one of them has something in common. Betterment of life through design and architecture. And that's what excites me so much about doing this show and sharing this with you. Showcasing conversations from the previous 299. And it's a logical place to start here because 2020 has been a trip, has it not? When this whole thing started, I ran a special series of episodes called Designing for Disaster, which was an opportunity to focus on the pandemic in real time. And it was fascinating to hear how designers and architects were adapting in real time. So we're starting this episode with a conversation I had with designer Joe Berkowitz about how design was going to change post-COVID. Joe shares his thoughts on the quote-unquote edit, something he already incorporates into his work, but now it's even more important than ever. You know, I'm always direct about it. You know, after a while, you start looking at these things like they're really accessories, but they're not. And, uh, you have to cut the cord at some point, you know, and just pare it down and like find, get the refined pieces and keep those in there. That that's the key. You know, when I when I start to bring things back into a room, first of all, I never put anything in the same space it was. You know, I really want to find a new home for accessories, and then I just I may I make a discard pile, and I would say you know discard doesn't mean throw out, but maybe just put away for the next time. You know, the next time you rearrange and want a new look. But uh, I think that's the best way to do it. And the same thing goes for some of the larger pieces. You know, if you have peripheral accent tables, peripheral chairs that are just sort of filler, clean them out, you know, thin it out a little bit. You know, people are afraid to have space between things. They're afraid to have a bare wall. You know, they tend to want to hang everything they have, you know, fill every wall. And it becomes overkill. It actually takes away from the quality of the design because your eye doesn't have a stopping point. It's just bouncing all over the place. You need to have a little open space between artwork, between mirrors, between furniture. And I think that really helps uh, give a room a new look. COVID was not the only major issue we dealt with head-on in 2020. A core component of social injustice is the lack of diversity in American society, and our business is not exempt. Listen to Jean Brownhill, architect and CEO of Sweden, as she shares her story and her introduction to architecture. Jean is incredibly talented and driven, and this is how she got her start. So I have to be honest. <laughs> I did not know anything about this industry. So we're going to go all the way back to when I was a junior in high school. I was good at math. I was good at art. But that was only because I have dyslexia. So my guidance counselor said, you know, you should be an architect. You're good at math. You're good at art. That's like what an architect does. Now, nobody in my community, nobody in my family, like, I didn't know what that meant. But my mom pulled out one of these College for Dummies books. She then goes to the architecture section. She finds Cooper Union is free. And she's like, great. I, now I know how you're going to go to college. We have no money for you to go to college. This place is free. You're going to go for architecture. Done. Problem solved. Now, you know, like, I didn't realize that that was kind of an insane idea because it's harder to get into than West Point. But I was up for the challenge, as always. And I loved, and they still, they really rely on a, a home test um, as part of the application process. And I'm just a naturally curious person, as I said, who doesn't quit. And so I did that home test. I did that home test like, I don't know, I was like on fire to do that home test. Got into Cooper Union, found out that I actually do love architecture, that I love living in cities, that I love, like I, it was serendipity in the, in the most true sense of how I got into the industry. And I, can't, I, I haven't looked back. I have not had any other profession. I have not been in any other industry. 
I love architecture. I love construction. I was, I was in college. I was like a shop rat. I was the girl, like you know, on the table saw pouring, and I was pouring bronze and and doing all the like <laughs> crazy things. I loved it. I just loved it. So it found me, and we've been happy ever since. On this very same topic, I produced and moderated a panel at West Edge Design Fair that covered the very issue of diversity or lack thereof in the business. Some thoughts from Brian Pinkett, then Bridget Coulter, and Ron Woodson. There's diversity wherever I go, because I'm there. Okay? So that answers your question. Um, There's a level of comfort that we give to our clients and the people that we're dealing with to, one, let them know that we're capable of doing what we are capable of doing without the color or without the, the background or baggage that some people might bring. Fortunately for us, uh, the people that are attracted to us, they don't necessarily see that color. And the people who are here, I would imagine, are interested in having this conversation because they want to have more of this conversation so that it spreads throughout the country, right, and the world. So um, I think, obviously, in this day and age, with what's going on with our president and the political scene, we need to have more conversations about it. And it's going to be up to us and people like you, Josh, who produce these events to really bring it to the forefront. And I think to the young lady's point is that uh, idea that it should be It should infiltrate everything. It's a diverse world we live in, but there is this sense of exclusivity. And in my mind, that's broken down by media, by perception, by social media, and what we put out there. And I know I've been approached for projects to do a cover on a magazine or um, somebody looking at a project. And and I've been told things that where I've seen something similar and... um, Uh, sometimes there's a resistance or there's a story that they want to tell that you don't fit. And then there's other stories where they want to tell that you fit, but not just fitting you in the diversity story, but just treating you like a designer. And my experience, I've been doing design for 15 years, um, and I have that experience of, I'm a multicultural black woman, and I've traveled, and I've been very lucky. And like what Ron said is your background and your story and all of that filters who you are as an artist, and I've been lucky to grow up in this craftsman home in Berkeley and uh, come down to Southern California, live in Africa, in London, and I've lived around the world, and that filter, it, it informs my work, and I think that the people who hire me or who are drawn to my work feel this global collected thing, this flavor and texture that they want, and that's part of them, they're traveled. And I don't think we have the color conversation, although I'm very like, yeah, I, I'm who I am and I'm very proud and I think it makes me um, uh, better at what I do. And, and I think that that conversation of not seeing color is uncomfortable to me because I actually want you to see my color and I'm proud of it and it's part of me just like you want me to see that you're a woman or you, if you're very proud of your religion, you're like, this is part of who I am. We, we listen to our clients and we want to make sure we're reflecting them as well. Right. I think one misnomer um, sometimes that people have and you speak about diversity is, okay, we've got a, a panel of <laughs> all African Americans um, and sometimes people will think, oh, they're just going to want to have African art in the design that that they're going to put in my house. Completely not true. And I've, I've talked to some of my Asian counterparts um, about this subject, and, and some have said the same thing. It's like, okay, I'm not coming, and I'm not going to be putting all Asian art in your house. Um, so, But sometimes people have this perception. I've not had it, but... Um, it, it is something that I think sometimes people should take a look at. You, you can't pigeonhole a, a group of people who are not the majority that they're, they're going to do and, and design one particular way. And because clearly if you look at the breadth of work that I have done over the years, I mean, it's kind of all over the board, 
but um, there's a there's a common thread. I mean, I just like good design, and I like glamorous design, and to me that has no face, no color. No, I just like good design, and and that's where it ends. And so, and I think that's how it should be looked at. Um, but at the same time, you know, more people of color should have inclusion. And sometimes I, I think younger African Americans, I mean, because I, I get people, young designers who have reached out to me for a long time. I'm, I'm a mentor to a, a lot of them. And, you know, some of their stories are, are, are varied and they, some feel, um, how can I start? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be accepted. And it's like, no, 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 you're, you're, you got to get out there and your work has got to be what is going to propel you. You, you. you can't sit back and say, well, I'm African-American and they're not going to like me or they're not going to like my designs. Um, you you got to push. New in 2020, a new series called The Showroom, a partnership between Convo by Design and Walker Zanger showcasing incredible work, as well as an inspirational series designed to shine a light on working more efficiently within design partnerships. This is John Colinari. Doing my house, you made a great point. Form and function is something that's so important. And I, and I tell it to my clients when we're, when we're sitting down to our design meetings, because just the, the simplest things where I put an outlet. Why did I put an outlet there? Some people might say, oh, you put an outlet because code says put them every... No, I put an outlet there for a specific reason because I had an audio component that was going to go there, a piece of furniture I knew that would block it. You know, there's a lot of things that, that go into that. And I tried my best um, to really do that here. I tried when I went with my own clients... I really try to do those things with them when we're starting from a fresh start, if, it, if it's new construction or, or a remodel where I'm, I'm redoing the whole room. Um, I really try to go through those elements with them because it makes such a big difference. You're saying, oh, well, why did you, you know, why did, you know, for, for, for my entry, I knew I had this huge mirror that I wanted to go on the stick wood. Um, that's why I put the two flanking lights there. Cause it, it was all, I knew things that I was going to put up before they were there. So that's what I try to do all the time um, with my clients as well. It's sometimes it's, it's hard and sometimes it's, it's a little easier, but that, if you can do that, that makes your design really step above. That's there's, there's design and then there's great design where you say, wow, that person thought of everything. They literally almost, it was them living in the house, but the house wasn't done yet. Um, and if you can do that, that's where you. That's where you really hit. That's you hit a, a very high mark. Speaking of partnerships, we have a great partnership with Texas-based Thermosol. This is Mitch Altman, the man at the helm of this family-owned and operated company, doing groundbreaking work in steam showers for over sixty years. He was a plumber, and the way that the way that the company started, even previous to that, was you know uh, he was a plumber in New York. My father worked with him. And there was a French diplomat in Manhattan that called him DNA Plumbing and asked if he was able to uh, make a steam bath in his shower. And so my grandfather said, this was like 1956, my grandfather said, sure. And he put a boiler in the basement and ran all kinds of tubing up to the guy's shower. And the guy loved it. I mean, it, it you know, he, he, it worked and uh, he loved it and, and he he paid my grandfather $10,000 at that time, which was more money than he ever could imagine. And, you know, he was on, on with life, you know, doing his plumbing, plumbing business. And about two or three weeks later, a friend of this French diplomat uh, said, hey, can you do one for me? And my <laughs> grandpa says, maybe there's something to this. And so that's where he started to put together the shower with the steam in it. The core of Convo by Design the essence, the meaning, the purpose behind it is I consider myself a storyteller and a mirror to shine a light on those amazing designers and architects and creatives who make this business as special as it is. Convo by Design was built 
on fascinating conversations with world-class talent, showcasing a handful of those. First up is Michael Berman. And, and, and one thing I just want to mention, which is really a cool thing, because I'm very proud of that porthole concept. <laughs> um, and in fairness, my assistant Rod was very instrumental in, in, in putting that together as well. Um, uh, but what I want to say is what was a great sort of bonus or added surprise was when you're in the master bedroom or when you're on the terrace outside of the master bedroom and the porthole window is open, you can see through and you see that beautiful um, marble dimensional tile on the walls. So again, it's a white on white dimensional textural tonal thing um, that is really refreshing. And, and in Palm Springs in particular, you know, you'll often see I'm in Palm Springs right now and I will show you around in a second. But the thing that's just so, you know, um, wonderful about this sunlight and this atmosphere is when you pair it in contrast to something very colorful and then you have something, you know, so, so sunlight white that it's um, almost blinding. But that's the look that people are after because it's so cooling. It's a nice cooling effect. And that's kind of what we're after here. Thank you, Michael. This is Cesar Geraldo from the Convo by Design Programming Lounge in 2017. Cesar just looks at me and he says, I'm ready to inject myself with venom. <laughs> because of what la last year, you just, you were here working. Big time. It was, it was so hard. It was... But it was a work of love. Right? You know, absolutely, yeah. Teaming up with all these brands, um, coordinating with everyone, all the schedules, um, the logistics, uh, the timing, you know, to put a whole, you know, installation together in such a short amount of time. It left me just like ready for some, uh, you know. Yes. Totally. But it's interesting because putting something like this together is all the pressure of a design house and none of the lead up time. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's all. <laughs> what did you do this year? I did a, uh, the installation for the uh, Karma Lounge. Okay. The oh, new, beautiful. Yeah, yes, that's, that's one of my installations. And um, I also did, a, it's a lot smaller, um, Witty Deli. I uh, commissioned uh, this artist from Paris. His name is Mambo who is doing the, uh, 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 the new uh, handbag line for Moinat, which is, the, uh, uh, is a high-end luxury brand for Louis Vuitton. And uh, he did a mural for us at the, uh, by the Tideli Cafe. So that was, that was also a nice touch to bring to West Edge. Oh, that's great. Yeah, from Paris to West Edge. That is outstanding. You have to give that to Megan and Troy. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yes, they're like the Ken and the Barbie of design. Up next... Designer Lori Dennis. Lori is a multi-appearance guest on the show. She's a friend, and I always appreciate her her amazing take on the business of design. So what I did was um, I said, let's take the show on the road. So we picked this. I had a client at the time who sold AGL shoes. They're $400 ballet flats and Nordstrom's. And I said, where, where are you selling the most shoes? Because wherever you're selling the most shoes, they're the most designers in those places. And I don't want to go to the regular places. I don't want to go to New York and L.A. They have stuff there already. Who's selling shoes? Who's got designers in a place where good stuff isn't showing up as frequently? It was Austin. And Austin is a cool place. It's a rock and roll kind of a town. So we got this old dirty theater, this old rock and roll theater. And we just put the word out and sponsors just started jumping on board. I mean, it was our energy. We knew we had a hit. And it was a two-day deal, so there were really 18 courses we started with. And um, we just taught uh, some business strategies. We taught some inspiration. Um, we brought in there some real estate agents to talk about the market and how that affects. And everybody just networked together. At the end of the, at the, end of the day, we, we were all in our pajamas in the hotel. And we brought all the, the drinks and the snacks and whatnot that we had left over. And we're just sitting there. And everyone was so jazzed and, like, helping each other. And there was a camaraderie and um, a real buzz. Thank you, Lori. This is Ron Woodson and Jamie Rummerfield. Jamie and I both are from Los Angeles, so Hollywood is in our DNA. And, you know, a lot of designers come to Los Angeles and claim to be Hollywood designers. But you really have to be from here 
to really pull off what we do and to really be entrenched. I mean, you can get right. schooling from it and you can read books all you want, but we've lived it. Yeah. So it really is truly a part of who we are. Right. Um, I, yeah, I would say Hollywood Regency has always been there. Has always been there. <laughs> you know, there. and it yeah. still is there. And it it's a, a signature style of a bygone era of Hollywood that is, is really important to us. We don't want our projects to, to be a time capsule. So, you know, we're very fashion forward. Our clients are extremely fashion forward. And they seek us out for that. They know when you sign up with us, you know you're going to have some bold, opulent, uh, beautiful interiors. So if you're searching for the neutrals and just sort of uh, average and mundane, that's that's not not going to happen. (laughs) One of the events I missed most in 2020 that I cannot wait to go to again is the La Cienega Design Quarters Legends event. In 2019, Convo by Design was an official media partner. And as the event brought in design icon Bunny Williams, we got a chance to hear her thoughts on, first, what designers really need to know. It's just very important. It's it's very important for all of us to know our skill. And um, I think we're losing that a little bit. I think that um, listen, we all want to have a great career, but you, you were, um, I was talking to Peter Dunham this morning and I said, you know, the thing that's happening in the design world is because things are more available to people online, every site, we all struggle through that. As a designer, you have to be top of your game. You have to understand architecture. You have to understand furniture. You have to you have to have a background. And if you don't know that, you're not going to ever get someplace to me in the design world because that's what your the client who can hire a designer demands. Next, Bunny shared her thoughts starting out as a new designer, working for the storied firm of Parrish Hadley, and specifically what it was like working for Sister Parrish, what she liked, what she didn't, and what she learned. Well, she was she was a character. Um, what what was always interesting about her, um, and this probably, I not I don't not gonna. She first of all, she was one of the funniest people that ever lived in the world. I mean, she could have been a stand-up comic. And she also, because she was so funny, embellished every story there was. So if you would go do something with her that was sort of mundane, two days later when she's repeating the story, it's much funnier. It's half of it's made up, but it was absolutely delightful. But I, some of the things that I did learn or, or from her were actually things I didn't want to be. Um, you know, I... Our office wasn't always easy. There was tension. I don't want anybody to come to my office and feel that they don't want to come to work. I love to go to work every single day. I want people in my office to feel that way. She liked chaos. She liked, you know, sort of negative, to me, a negative energy. But she also had this way with clients that within 15 minutes, they whatever she said they would walk into the water I mean and I'm like and and it was always a way because she was so sort of understated about it she was never arrogant to her clients but somehow they thought oh what is she gonna do and I was like that isn't even a very good idea but she (laughs) could do that so I I always thought how can I get that because she certainly got her clients to do whatever she wanted but she she was wonderful uh working for both Albert and Mrs. Parrish was quite something and this is Ryan Sagan from episode 112 now Ryan is another friend who has appeared more than once on the show and he never disappoints Ryan is highly opinionated incredibly talented and always fun to talk to. You have to learn to read people and you have to learn to tell people to shut up sometimes and just stop and just to trust you because they talk too much and they think too much and there's a reason why they hired you but they forget that reason. And 
I just have to reassure them over and over and over again that I know what I'm doing. There's a reason why you're a doctor. There's a reason why I'm a designer. Just trust me. And every time I push, they always say thank you for pushing me. Thank you, Ryan. This is another Ryan, designer Ryan White, who designed the Convo by Design Programming Lounge from the West Edge Design Fair in 2016. It was really a special place, masterfully designed by Ryan and it could not have been executed without partners like Snyder Diamond and Warner Brothers. Yeah, it does feel a little odd, right? Like leaving this space, it kind of feels like we went through a bit of like a summer camp in a way, like a summer retreat weekend getaway with uh, new and old friends. Um, and it, I think it went so well that it's a little bit bittersweet to end it because lots of these times things don't go so well. You know, it's a little bit more difficult. This was a very simple experience with everyone that was involved. So yeah, it's a little bittersweet, I guess. And it's weird too because with a with a residential project that you'll work on, right? You'll hand it off, but you know they're going to live in this house for 20, 30 years or longer. And you know maybe eventually they sell, but they're gonna they're gonna live in it. They're gonna love it. They're, this is one of those things where all this work goes in, and it's it's for three days, and then it it goes away. Right. I mean, it's kind of. I guess I now know what set decorators feel like for movies or commercials. And I've never been that type of designer. So, like you said, my designs um, kind of I guess live on forever until someone redoes them or I redo them or whatever the whatever the case might be. But they live for a while. Um, and you're right, this kind of all comes down in a short amount of time. So, Architect Ward Jewell, to whom I often refer back when I need to be reminded of what's really important. In times like these, look back, open a book, and you will find your path for the future. Every, every project is different. It's funny because, you know, you see all these lots and they're all about the same size, but every project is different. It has to do with what the client wants, obviously, but every site has its own little little feeling as far as where where the light comes from, where the sun is, where the you know if it's where the breeze is coming from, and how the topography is. You know, what for instance, my house here, the, the the lot went from the street sloped back gently to the backyard, and when I first bought this house, it had it was two feet above the grade in the backyard. So I lowered this back part here, as you can see, it's now a ten foot ceiling to get closer to great. Every house has, every project has something unique, unique about it. And, it's, and the key is to find that, is try to find out what those characteristics are and then make it work. And, and part of that too is fighting trends. And fight, so let me back up. So here in Los Angeles, Southern California, you started in, in the 70s. Uh, the 70s were not, was not a good time in Southern California for architecture. I looked beyond that. Now, one of the things, too, I, I ended up doing a lot of traditional work. Obviously, I went to SciArc. I'd love to be doing more modern work, but I'd done plenty of modern work. But I um, grew up in a Wallace Neff house, the Getz house, and I was exposed to something simple as molding. Well, how, what is molding in a house? Well, it's, it does an amazing thing to a house, you know. Um, so I have this affinity for it, and also I cared enough about the styles to explore them, to understand them, to know what works in a specific style. And the thing that I was looking at, the 70s, the mistake a lot of people have made is they don't bother to open a book. They can't even just open a book and look at, okay, I'm gonna do a Mediterranean house. We were just talking about Mediterranean houses. Open a book, take a drive to Santa Barbara, walk down State Street, take a look at the details, how it's done. It's, it's, it's actually very simple. But you know, actually, be able to synthesize it and make, you know, make something in a in a specific style, make it look like it's timeless. It ha and I know that's a that's that's a, a cliche. Next up is the soft-spoken and incredibly talented Joan Bankey talking about the value of art and how art influences her design. You know, you look around my office and and there's there's decorative pieces that I think I consider art. You know where it starts, Josh, is that um, I think of a room as a sculpture. So, so to me, when you when you um, when you enter a space, it becomes sculpture, and um, and I think that's a different approach. Furniture needs to provide comfort. Um, 
but our office uh, you know is a little bit different in that we're, we're we're not just decorators we we do backgrounds we do ceilings we do floors we do walls we do you know millwork all that kind of stuff that that's all part of what we do and the the big thing about that is to integrate all those pieces and that's the fun thing honestly because if you're just buying fabrics and chairs and tables you're limited you again it's about being open to what what is out there and and how one thing can influence there's many many times that that art paint painters paintings have influenced us in terms of how we've designed custom carpets um, we've you know um, uh, how we've designed furniture how we've designed lighting how we've we've considered that in nature nature's nature's a big influence for me and um, but but it's but I think about I think about what we do as interior sculptors that's that's kind of our our starting point. Thank you, Joan. This is Cliff Fung from episode 68, another fine example of multidisciplinary designer, in this case, fashion designer turned interior designer, an entrepreneur, Cliff Fung. I think it's all really about the, the person. And kind of one of the really nice things about our time is that I, I think people aren't restricted to living in in first-tier cities in America. It, it used to be, there used to be a time, um, maybe it's easy for me to say because I'm from New York and I live in Los Angeles, but there used to be a time where people would only consider living in New York or Los Angeles if they were in some creative industry, um, whether it's entertainment or design or fashion, you know. And then, and then you know, the financial sector, obviously, is, is largely centered in, in, the, in uh, New York. Um, but now, because there's so many people who live more kind of free-form existences because it's so easy to do business online or through email correspondence or Skype conferences, that people can really live anywhere and, and travel to where they need to for work. And, and maybe that's actually a little more interesting than, than the obligation of living in the same city every day and, and having kind of a daily grind to, to, to deal with. So there are a lot of very interesting um, entrepreneurs, industry creative, interesting creative people, executives who are choosing just to live outside their city centers or the normal city centers and in, in the way that they might create, create a life for themselves in, in those other areas, other territories. I think it's just as progressive or as edgy as if they were living in the city. That doesn't, that doesn't change. Um, because the environment changes, I, I think uh, I think people are you know open to creating whatever they need to create wherever they are. Victor Zolfo, set decorator, is going to tell you what it feels like to win an Oscar and the BAFTA for his work on the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Have you ever wondered what that feels like to win an award at the highest level? I'm sure you can imagine, uh, and you're you're about to hear for yourself. It was a trip. I mean. From the day the nominations came out, um, well, that was that was wild. That the BAFTA's nominations had come out the week before, and we had gotten nominated for a BAFTA, which I thought was amazing on itself, and I was all excited about the BAFTA. And then the Academy nominations came out, and it was just is kind of like the the adrenaline just floods your brain and um, my phone was blowing up my email was blowing up um, and I was sort of just in shock that it had actually happened um, and then the whole process you know you're shepherded through all of these screenings of your movie and you have many audiences that you have to talk to and you have to speak about your craft and um, you get so married to it that you start to become very caught up in the in the race the going to the Oscars was it was like a 
Oh, I, you described it very well. It is like a dream. I know it sounds really hokey, but you sort of are just putting one foot in front of the other. You're smiling. You're looking around at all these celebrities and famous people, and you're standing there in your tuxedo, and you're like, what? What is going on? Winning was the pinnacle. Um, you just can't believe it. You know, they, they call your name out, and you stand up and somehow make your way to the stage but um, I can't describe the feeling other than a flooding of adrenaline um, it's like going over the top hill of a roller coaster and being on stage looking out at the theater is just surreal Dakota Jackson and his work they're legendary within the art furniture movement the magician turned designer turned magical designer talks about crafting a one-of-a-kind gift from Yoko Ono to John Lennon. I did build magic illusions uh, before I built furniture. I consider magic to be a realm unto itself where you're talking about paraphernalia and uh, what intrigued me about that transposition from building magic illusions to building furniture was this element of the portrayal of power that these objects that we surrounded ourselves with uh, were imbued with a sense of possibility or a certain hierarchy. Uh, so I began with pieces called Furniture as Deadly Weapons or New Wonders of the World because again I wanted them to be heroic. Uh, the connection between magic and furniture really first began with Yoko, who for John's 34th birthday, they were separated at the time, uh, and uh, wanted a desk that had a number of hidden compartments, or as she described it, more like a Chinese puzzle. I took this on not so much as in the realm of the magician, but in the realm of the, like the watchmaker, to make a precision instrument. And go back to that point about tenets of magic. Magic works only insofar as it maintains the illusion of normalcy. And the illusion of normalcy uh, has to do with, it goes back to choreography in a way. How you move in a purportedly normal or relaxed situation and then how you move in the very same way when, as Dylan would say, something's happening here, something's, going, hap something's happening and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? So that element, again, within the furniture was the fact that it just simply looked like what it was, that it was a desk and it was nothing more than a desk. If it had something about it that imbued it with this kind of sense of magical power, it wouldn't have worked. I'll tell you, just to, if I can tell it quickly, um, about, I never asked her why she wanted these compartments. 27 years later, or 37 years later, she came back to me, 25 years after John's death, and she said that this was John's favorite object, but she wanted to have it restored to a position where it would be just maintained. It turned out it was restored very poorly, or, or that it was stored very poorly, so we decided to rebuild it, but she asked me to open one of the compartments, and this was 37 years later. There was a 24-year-old boy who built this, and this compartment slides open, and she removes an envelope from it out of which comes a photograph of Yoko from 37 years before, this very beautiful picture of her. And she wanted to have it so that John could keep it in a very special place, even though they weren't living together. That was Dakota Jackson. This is another longtime friend of the show, Timothy Corrigan. We started out with a, with a, a USP and a, and a slogan of a world of comfortable elegance. Um, we started positioning ourselves from the very beginning on this aspect of, uh, of timeless, comfortable elegance. And again, 
Timeless is so important because you've wa- we've all walked into houses where it clearly says, oh, that was done in 1968 and that was done in 2012 and that was done in 2019. And you really want it to, you want it to be more timeless, to not be as specific as any one period of time because you want something to, that's going to stand the test of time. So we tend to stay away from things that are too trendy and too specific to any one particular period. So I think that's one of the key things. It's one of the key elements of, of our success. But I think also the aspect of really tying into whatever you define elegant. So one person may define elegant as being cutting edge contemporary. Another person might find it as, as 18th century. We work with whatever they decide they want is their, their term or thought of what is elegant, but then we make it comfortable and timeless. Thank you, Tim. This is architect Takashi and I. Well, we always look, or I always look at the surroundings. That's a huge part of it. So, you know, our architecture or our design, it's, it, it's not cookie cutter and it, it doesn't have um, a set uh, palette of materials or set language. Each house or each project is, is custom. Um, bespoke, tailored, however you want to put it, very specific to the particular aspects of the place and the clients, the people. So whether it's like a suburban tract in Irvine that may be really ultra homogenous in some ways, there's something there that we can latch onto and find something positive about or comment on um, that we would spin in a creative way and then make our project unique for the client. We we don't want to stand out in a bad way, but but we want to, you know, be distinct and make a statement and be special uh, in any case, but always contextual, you know, always trying to riff and understand the context that we're in. From one architect to another, thank you, Takashi. This is architect Michael Racklin from episode number 16. And this is a 1928 unreinforced brick masonry building that originally housed the Angelus shoe polish. So for 50 years they were making shoe polish in this and uh, my kids went to school right next door. It's called Turning Point and I was uh, dropping them off at school one day. I ran into the owner Paul Angelus and we struck up a conversation and he had voiced the opinion that one day he wanted to sell and retire and move on and I told him what a wonderful building he had although it was in terrible shape. I could see the bones, and I said, you know, when you're ready to sell, I'm ready to buy. And about a year later, he approached me and said, you know, I think it's time for me to move on. You know, Culver City is uh, changing. They're moving the sort of the industrial users out and the creative office users into this area. Um, so we struck a deal, and um, a few years later, we ended up buying the building and, and renovating it. But it was an extensive renovation, as you can imagine. He had underground storage tanks, and there were chemicals everywhere. It was 50 years of neglect, so if, if you can imagine, uh, it took uh, took about 16 months to turn this thing back into what it, you see today. One of the topics that comes up quite often on Convo by Design is the idea of designer crafting their own line, their own signature line. And there, there are those that know how to develop a line, a goal for many designers. And one of the best I know at this very skill is Sue Firestone. What happened about five years ago when I decided I wanted to do this, I decided to put together a series of about 20 color boards. And I had flown out to Kravit, New York, and met with Scott Kravit and his right hand, Steve Prada. They showed me color boards that other designers had done, and I was kind of blown away, but I decided I'm going to do better. And I put in many, many hours with friends and family, like working overtime to do these incredibly huge, bigger than anything I saw, and more developed, that really said, you know, what I wanted the Sue Firestone collection to be. And it's it's all about me, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s in Point Doom, barefoot on the beach, kind of the Coachella vibe, but you know, 50 years ago. And that's my love and organic, back to nature. So I put together these boards and then presented them to Kravit. They were blown away. And then their designers, once we signed a deal, used those boards to create designs for me, sent them to me. I would approve, change, bless, change the color, et cetera. It was a great, easy process. But it all started with the brand boards that I created that 
were reflective of my signature as I wanted it to develop. Showed the same boards to Arud, and again, they took off from that to create upholstery pieces, and then I actually hired someone to help me work, somebody who designs furniture, to sit down and design pieces of furniture that had live edge, because I've always gone to Mimi London, but I wanted to create sort of a live edge that was a little bit more um, feminine, if you will, less massive, less uh, ski-oriented, and something that could be used in California, you know, indoor outdoor living, and it's been a great success. Designer Kyle Schooneman appeared on the show early on. Uh, he was in the first year of Convo by Design. I found him so fascinating because he had just published a book and he has been focused early on on small spaces and specifically small spaces for millennials, apartments and that sort of thing that didn't traditionally get a lot of design attention. Turns out it's more important now than ever before. This is Kyle Schooneman. So uh, the book agent that I went to, uh, that was a friend of a friend's, uh, she, she kept pushing it back and saying, make it better, you know, make it better. So this pitch, we, we kind of honed and honed and honed. And so by the time it was, was time to approach publishers, we got multiple offers. And it, I was surprised by the interest level. I wasn't actually surprised, right? Because I, I believed it. It was something that I felt was real. So I, it's not so much I was surprised, but you're always like, well, someone actually agrees with me. But so from that, from that book, when it came out, that's when I was actually surprised because now it's like all of these uh, retailers are approaching, specifically wanting to talk to the people that I'm talking to. If you've listened to Convo by Design for any amount of time, you know how fond I am of set decorators. I think they're amazing for a number of reasons. I love their theatrical reveals. I love the fact that they thrive and survive, or maybe it's the other way around, survive and thrive in a business where you're just not allowed to say no. You don't get to say no. You can't say no, but you can say yes. And here's when we'll get it done, or we're going to need to do this, but it will get done. The other part is that they're not designing for a client. They're designing for words on a page, which means that it is truly, truly an artistic endeavor. This is a series of set decorators, Rosemary Brandenburg first, then William DiBiazio, and Casey Fox. Set decorators are first and foremost storytellers. Architecture is the language of design, design is the storytelling of design, and while set decorators are not necessarily designers, they are some of the best storytellers around. Well, you could almost compare a film crew and an art department to a little bit of almost, you can use military tech terms. So. You know, we have these departments, it's all divided up. Um, when we first all started in films and TV, a lot of times we were like puppies and everybody did everything. But when we do these bigger projects, it's all divided up. We have these pieces of the pie that we take care of. And, but unlike a pie, it's really disorganized and we have to really have a lot of conversations about who does what. Um, if you want to get down to the brass tacks, once the set is built and painted or the location is chosen, we do almost everything else. That, you, that the camera would be looking at and the audience would see. We don't do things that are off camera, grips and electricians take care of that, but we do things that you actually see. So any light fixture that's in the, in the movie or TV show, any furniture, all the character stuff, all the detail, um, carpeting, drapery, it becomes a laundry list. But what goes into that is a lot of research and a lot of detailing. We have to break down the script, we have to think up ideas that we're going to present to this group of people that we are responsible to. There's, it's not just a production designer and a director. We could be dealing with producers, actors. An awful lot of voices come into play. Um, so we're responsible for coming up with concepts and presenting them, just as any interior designer might. Um, but it takes a, takes a lot of, of thinking. A lot of research goes into it. I do a lot of period work or futuristic work, so it can involve an awful lot of, of concept work, a lot of research into what really used to be, but then we have to select from that. You can't just do a slice of life. Um, and then, of course, then executing it. As you said, we're department heads. So there's budgeting that we have to take care of. We have to figure out um, 
all of the detail in terms of scheduling. It's a complicated job and it all happens very quickly like dominoes because in movie business, we do multiple sets, movie and TV, we do multiple sets that uh, all have to happen in, over a course of a schedule. So unlike an interior design project, we really are compressed on time. And um, everyone has financial constraints. I think we all have that in common. Um, but in a nutshell, anything inside the walls is usually a set decoration job. You're always looking to embrace trends. You're also looking to uh, perhaps create trends. Um, I created bedrooms and spaces for an audience that was very involved with the show and wanted to replicate those same worlds in their own spaces. It early became part of Pretty Little Liars. I realized that uh, as I wandered through the prop house, if I saw something that I knew was going to be a key prop that I would use in a future episode, before it actually was in the set and you knew what it meant, I would photograph it in the prop house and tweet it out to the audience so that they would see something and they would have a sense of something that was coming but have no idea how it fit into the story. Well, that set could take place on a freeway or in a triage center out in the middle of a busy urban area or it could be inside an apartment. So those various sets that make up that script all need to come to fruition. So whether it's a busy, I mean, comedies tend to have more sets than, than dramas. Mm -hmm. Comedies, they're moving quite quickly. So unlike Forgetting Sarah Marshall or He's Just Not That Into You, we'd have 40 or 50 sets possibly within a, a six, uh, you know, within a six month period to, to create. Um, television might be six to 10 sets a week. So it's always very quick, and, but it depends. What does that character need? Is, it, is, it, uh, is there a lot of action going on? Is there a particular prop? Is there a colorway that you're going to be heading towards, like Legally Blonde 2? There were certain colors that had already been established on Legally Blonde 1. Um, you know, is, is the character a minimalist? Is the character a hoarder? Is the character, does the character collect art? Um, do you actually have access to art or do you need to create the art for this character? So there's lots of different aspects of a particular script that you, that you need to mull over and, and figure out very quickly. Well, in Legally Blonde 1, they kind of set a certain palette. And so when we created her, her apartment for Legally Blonde 2, we knew we were going to be strong on certain colors, pinks particularly. She, Elle was very fond of pink. Elle loves pink. <laughs> but then by the time we got to uh, her work and her living, this, this apartment, or, uh, this condo, was for a sorority group. And there were many sorority condos throughout the world. So this particular one was in Washington. So we wanted to play up the fact that there were other sorority condos elsewhere in the world, and it became a little more sophisticated. She's no longer, um, she's now in Washington, and so she was playing with the big boys and it needed to be more sophisticated. Speaking of storytellers, uh, I'm ending with one of, one of the best interview subjects around. Martin Lawrence Ballard is highly accomplished. You know this, but if you listen to how he tells the story, you can understand how he got here. Martin is an incredibly skilled designer. He's very creative. He's a producer. He's an actor. I think at the core of everything that Martin Lawrence Ballard does, it's theatrical. And there's drama. And there's a storyline. And there are through lines. And because of that, his work is... Obviously, it's, it's fantastic. Um, his work is amazing. And listening to him talk about it is equally fun. This is Martin Lawrence Ballard. So one of the really fun things we have in our window, though, actually, is a chandelier. And the chandelier is very typical Tony. It's painted in a malachite green. It's got seashells applied. It's got little bits of coral and crystal. But it is totally glued together. And on examining it, you see that the central column is actually part of an old staircase. I think it's actually the banister post. So 
it is so Tony that he would pull, you know, bits and pieces from everywhere and put it together and create something spectacular and theatrical. And that's really what honoring him and, and creating these windows is about. Sort of, it's the high-low, it's the mixing of a beautiful rock crystal something with a painted stair banister. Thank you, Martin. As I wrap up this celebration of reaching episode 300, I am reminded that I did not get here alone. As a matter of fact, without the incredible creatives that appear on the show every week, and from this you you heard a small sample here, but there are literally hundreds that have appeared on this show over the past seven years. Without them, we could not do this. Without the trade partners like... Troy and Megan from the West Edge Design Fair, the Pasadena Showcase House for the Arts, ASID, AIA, LA Design Festival, Pacific Design Center, the Set Decorator Society of America. Without you, this would not be the show that it has become today, and I am eternally grateful. A huge thank you to all of the media publishers, editors, and professional publicists who bring their skills to sharing the stories of our industry every day and make this possible. Thank you. And most importantly, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing to the show for seven years and engaging at our events for seven years. And especially for the last seven months, everything exclusively online, your support has been absolutely amazing. Thank you for your emails, your texts, your show suggestions. If it wasn't for all of you, that make up this amazing design and architecture community. Seriously, what's the point? Thanks for listening. And until next week, keep creating. 